G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. Are companies and universities becoming less tolerant of ideas that are a bit out there, a bit outré, a bit controversial, ideas that might be different from what the majority of people on campus or in the institution think are the right ways of thinking? If you're on the wrong side of history, are you getting excluded from not just polite society, but maybe even your job? Um, the Coddling of the American Mind was a book, initially a, a piece, a cover piece in the Atlantic magazine that hit the world like a lightning bolt um, back in 2015 was the uh, Atlantic cover story about how we're all becoming essentially snowflakes and we're raising children to be dysfunctionally sensitive and hyper-vulnerable. Um, it was written by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. Uh, Greg is our guest today. He has a new book, uh, a follow-up to The Coddling of the American Mind, called The Cancelling of the American Mind, because what Greg works on in his day-to-day business, essentially, as a lawyer, is in defending people who are being persecuted for holding unpopular opinions, often at universities, often in big organisations. Greg is a New York Times bestselling author. He's the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, which is uh, the acronym of which is FIRE. He's written a bunch of books about freedom of speech, and his collaborator in the cancelling of the American mind is a Gen Zer named Ricky Schlott, a journalist, political commentator, just in case anyone thought that this was old fuddy-duddies shaking their fist at the heavens and saying, kids these days just can't take a joke. Uh, Ricky is uh, Ricky is on hand to report from the front lines of, of the American University campus about what's going on, uh, what she's seen, and uh, the aspirations that she holds for free speech in American academia and American capitalism. She's also a research fellow at FIRE, and she has a podcast called Lost Debate, as well as being a columnist at the New York Post. Please enjoy it. The one and only Greg Luciano and Ricky Schlott. How are you feeling to you know doing a book tour? How are you feeling doing a book tour about free speech at a time when there is a crisis in the Middle East which touches exactly on a bunch of issues that people find it most difficult to sure talk about like on both sides it's very this is one of the the most toxic issues in terms of being in terms of feeling like you are given a pass to be able to float ideas, to be able to kick around ideas, to be able to consider what, who's at fault and who's not at, at fault. It's like everyone has an extremely strong set of priors oh, yeah. at this time. And, and you all, I mean, it, it partially comes, one of the reasons why it doesn't, you know, bother me uh, is the fact that one of the most important values of freedom of speech is to know what people really think, not even if it's monstrous, but especially if it is. So right now, a lot of the speech that you're seeing, um, some professors and certainly some students saying on campus looks incredibly callous at minimum, in some cases really you know, outright supporting murderers, rapists, and you know the, 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 who, um, a terror, a terrorist attack. And um, and that's pretty horrifying. But you're not safer for knowing less about the world. 
So I think that if people are looking at some of the opinions in higher education and going, whoa, what the, and, and looking at some of the polling for, you know, particularly on how supportive people under the age of, of 25 are of, of not just Palestinians, but of, of Hamas, that's stuff worth knowing. So I, I think that now when you're arguing about the harder argument to make at the moment is, is the free speech culture argument, you know, telling people that if you're making blacklists of people who signed the Harvard letter blaming Israel entirely, you know, for the, um, for the, uh, Hamas attacks. Um, and you're trying to remind people that, you know, if you're making blacklists and you're deciding not to hire people on the basis of their opinion, we would still consider that cancel culture. Um, I can understand that the answer is, you know, what a lot of people actually try to argue, well, it's not really cancel culture. I'm like, well, according to our definition, it is like cancel culture is the uptick of attempts to get people, you know, deplatformed, fired, not hired in the first place and otherwise punished uh, for their point of view um, at the big uptick around 2014, accelerating 2017 and the culture of fear that resulted from it. Um, And I I hear people saying, oh, that's the then, you know, I just disagree with your definition of cancel culture. I'm like. No, I think I, I think you can't make the definition too subjective or else it becomes meaningless again. But if what you're saying is, do you think that these are people who deserve to be canceled? Then I would just want kind of people who are saying that to own that. Now, and I always have a caveat on the decision not to hire, you know, from um, the, the, from uh, some of these elite schools uh, that I think almost nothing healthier could happen for the country <laughs> is if America was far less dependent on creating, you know, giving our fanciest positions and our ruling class positions to graduates of these very strange places like Harvard, Yale, Stanford, et cetera. Um, I think we'd be a healthier country for it. And I also think that if you hire from one of these places, one of the things you have to make sure is that you're not hiring a canceler because like, yeah, like I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that you can have some radical beliefs on some stuff that really matters to you and still be an amazing employee. But you do want to make sure that you can tolerate other people's beliefs as well, because mm. what you don't want as an employer is someone who shows up like a lot of uh, elite college students did, and you know, uh, around 2020 and 2021, saying it's you know my politics are the highway, and you know I think you should get rid of the following you know five employees. You know that IT guy who seems to be vaguely pro-Trump. That guy's got to go. You know, like I think that uh, one thing that that campuses have been exporting to corporations has been an unhealthy cancel culture that's bad for business. Mm. Ricky, it, 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 there's something that's going on about safety, uh, about the about uh, violence, about my identity being attacked. Um, I'm a visiting fellow at, at the University of Technology, Sydney, whose dean of social sciences is one of the few people in, in Australia to be committed to fostering a culture of free speech on, on campus. And something that I see that I didn't see when I was studying there is a framing of what I would regard as disagreement into one of almost human resources questions about like, you know, if, if, if it's, if there's a huge gay pride parade and there's rainbow flags all over the place, the dissident gay person who speaks up and says, well, hang on, how long is pride actually going to be useful for? Does it maybe have collateral damage on young people who don't quite feel like they fit into the cliche of gayness? And, you know, maybe there's a, a path towards uh, sexual flourishing that doesn't go through the the rigid uh, identity of pride, that person can be accused of, credibly accused of undermining people's identity, attacking their lived experience and making them feel unsafe in an area where they should feel 
safe. What's that shift about? Yeah, I, I mean, I, um, I'm i 23 and I read The Coddling of the American Mind, Greg's prior book, when I was in college. And it very much um, diagnosed what I was seeing firsthand on campuses. I was raised certainly in, in a period of time where it was um, pretty unambiguous that speech was effectively equated to violence. Um, I think a lot of my friends who spent more time online and in Tumblr sort of premises may have been more uh, prone to believing that and, and clinging on to their identities more uh, forcefully. But I do think this the safetyism was rampant when I was at NYU. I only did two years of, of school at NYU and ended up dropping out during the pandemic. And it was institutionalized and reinforced this the safetyism that you're referring to in just like such profound ways. It's pretty hard for me to believe in retrospect. Looking back, when I first um, ended up at NYU's campus, I went to the the um, the security center to get my ID to get into every building. And on the back of the ID, it tells you like here's nine one one, here's the um, student health services in case you have a medical emergency. The the um, campus safety in case you have a, a safety issue and the bias response hotline in case someone aggrieves you when you're on campus. And so I think literally from day one, the insinuation to young people that um, college campuses really put forth is that you could be assaulted for verbally for your identity or for your politics or for whatever other protected category you may feel. And there's actually institutional um, hotlines and, and administrators on the other end that are there to attack words with with sanction or or with punishment and i think that that is something that really had a chilling uh, effect for me on my college campus and you see that same uh kind of mechanism being used by these gen zers who learn these tactics on campus and then show up at a job a couple years later and they use hr like they would a, a bias response hotline so i think that it's infecting broader swaths of society in, in a really profound way and um, certainly it's something that that I was raised completely mired in. And um, it took like some serious thought myself and some serious reading on my own to actually pull myself out of some of the, the distortions of my generation, I would say. What was it? What did it for you? What clicked? Um, for me, it was being a college student during the pandemic and being told that I should still be paying full tuition for Zoom school, which... A credit to my mom for saying absolutely not and and you can go and take a semester off and do your own thing and and um she helped float me through that as long as i did something interesting and with my mind um and so i did a ton of reading of books that i had not been assigned in my um i did a two-year uh condensed philosophy humanities program at nyu so i did finish effectively what would have been a liberal arts degree in two years and um, I, I pulled back and I said, what actually haven't I been assigned? And one of the things that just I, I can never like unlearn what I learned in the book On Liberty by John Stuart Mill. It's so profoundly impacted me in a way where it was like riding a bike and you can never get back to, to not knowing how to ride a bike. Or I, I mean, it was it was the fundamental values of what underpinned the society that I inherited that um, really just shook me from my complacency and made me animated to want to defend free speech and to defend um, the the classical liberal values that make my country free and that I think we're becoming so complacent about. And is that not on the syllabus? What were you studying? No, we had um, utilitarianism. And I actually ran into a professor later on um, who I'd had at NYU, a philosophy professor, who I mentioned that I'd read on Liberty too, And I was like, why didn't we read that? And he goes, oh, I haven't read it. Like, oh, get out. Okay. Yeah. Are you serious? 
He's a philosophy yeah. professor and he hasn't read On Liberty, one of the classic yeah. underpinning texts of Western liberal philosophy. Yeah, so I, I, I think that's the, the state of academia at the moment. I, I really want to find an old copy of On Liberty um, that I have because I remember there being this absolutely patronizing like intro to a version of On Liberty that came out, I think, in like the 80s or 90s. That's kind of like, you know, not very taken very seriously today. Like it was this really dismissive <laughs> kind of like and, and, and it's, it's, it's a funny thing when, when people were kind of like poo poo John Stuart Mill. And I'm kind of like the man spoke Greek at three. He's smarter than any of us. <laughs> But also, I mean, you can poo-poo him, and I still think it's interesting in a philosophy class to read Karl Marx. It's interesting to read Jeremy Bentham. It's interesting yeah. to read Utilitarians. It's interesting to read Communists. And But the idea that he would not be a foundational part of any tertiary education is extraordinary. Yeah. Well, no, poo-poo it as being like not like... Uh, particularly good philosophy. And I'm like, no, he was actually trying to fix things in the real world. Like, like the... Um, and, you know... The, I, I think some of the people that are read in this, um, uh, instead of Mill are, are com comparatively simplistic thinkers. So the attack on a person's identity being equated with the attack an attack on them, can we just explore the boundary between ideas and attacks or between because they, you know they must they must bump into each other at some point, right? Mm -hmm. If I, if I say that Jews are worthless human beings who should be eradicated from the face of the earth, that is an opinion. But it's obviously going to land as an extremely offensive attack on an individual Jewish student or worker. So we're drawing the boundary somewhere, right, about where beliefs and opinions bump into attacks. Is the, is the boundary just being drawn too tight or is that, is that a fallacious boundary? Well, uh, when we talk about, you know, the, the free speech culture versus free speech law, um, one of the things in free speech law that we think actually uh, makes a lot of sense, but um, uh, my, my mom's British, my dad's Russian, I, I spent a lot of time in other countries. Um, America's never had a sense that we're, there's like one modal American. And, and I think it's helpful to help us navigate being a genuinely multicultural, you know, uh, country is that there is no sense that kind of like there's, there's a, there's a one like one type uh, or idea um, of uh, how Americans, you know, should be. And that's one of the reasons why in First Amendment law, uh, the bedrock pr principle from a 1989 case called Texas v. Johnson is you can't ban something simply because it's offensive um, and because offensiveness is just too damn subjective. Um, basically, people dis people disagree on it from year to year, from person to person, from, from group to group, yeah, even across uh, genders and, and class differences. Now, how does that translate into, you know, our argument for free speech culture? You know, uh, again, it's the idea that we think it's valuable to know um, what uh, people really think. I think we do too much of associating um, in higher education the idea that there are I, – I, I, you came up with a great example of where ideas and identity do clash. But I think we do an awful lot of sort of uh, associating identities too much with opinions and ideas. That, uh, and that's one of the things we talk about in the book is we try to get people to think of cancel culture as a way of winning arguments without winning arguments. Um, th that essentially cancel culture is a way to not refute someone or convince them, but to scare them out of disagreeing with you or to run out the clock so that they no longer you know, bother. And we talk about uh, on the left um, uh, there being – we talk about the, the right and the left's different rhetorical fortresses, which are ways of avoiding arguments. And we talk about the way identity gets used um, in 
higher education, but how it's bled out to the entire society and, and how you get taken down this entire sort of demographic funnel of, you know, are you white? Are you male? Are you cisgendered? Are you uh, et cetera? Um, and we actually do the numbers and we're like, okay, this gets down to about 0.9% of the population that has, um, uh, so that, so congratulations, you've eliminated 99.1% of the, of the people you might be arguing with. Um, also, since you can claim kind of anyone's conservative or an idea is conservative, and then you can dismiss it there, you know, that gets you pretty close to almost zero if, if you really want to use it liberally. But here's the thing. None of it mattered because by the time you get to the next step, the, are you phobic? If you are uh, a uh, transgender, non-white person um, and you have the wrong opinion, you still don't count. You actually get, uh, it, it, in many cases, so, so for example, we talked to pretty much every black conservative author we knew and, and black moderate author we knew have been told that they're not really black for some of the opinions they have if they mm. weren't conforming. And it's like, oh, that's that's amazing. That that, that right. That's perfect. Because Clarence Thomas is not black. He's an yeah, Uncle Tom. But my, my favorite version of that was someone saying that that um uh Peter uh, that the Peter Thiel isn't actually gay because of yes. his political opinions. Yes. He's a man who has sex with men, but not right. gay because right. of, because of his political opinion, which is a which is a nuts uh, you know a, a crazy perfect track. And of course, you know, uh, trans people are, are told that they have internalized uh, 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 internalized transphobia. You know, Ricky gets told she has internalized um, uh, 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 misogyny. I'm the um, queen of internalized misogyny. Apparently, you can join Peterson's podcast. I am just just the queen of it. You I'm can right. join us. Uh, you can join us, self-hating gays and self-hating Jews uh, in the <laughs> in the tribe of uh, of ever, ever growing Uncle Toms. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, isn't it? So, I mean. Yeah. Do you want to just finish that thought? I mean, I feel like there's another bo- another beat there about how identity relates to the kinds of ideas that we're willing to tolerate. In other words, yeah. my thinking about myself essentially as a cluster of different communities mm-hmm. rather than the John Stuart Mill on liberty idea of each individual having a certain sanctity, uh, you know, so that the in the in the rambunctious roiling conversation about the the way that identities intersect in culture, though when those identities bump into each other, they're not just ideas of of, of uh, identities bumping into each other. They're a personal attack on individual human beings. Well, it, yeah. it, it, it ends up falling too much into the idea of like, this is your identity and this is your approved opinion from that point of view of identity, uh, which is oftentimes something imposed from without and usually by uh, elites themselves saying that, that's well. That's what. That's the gay opinion. It's like, really, like mm. you, you. You really think that's appropriate? And yeah, earlier in my career, I would have said nobody actually thinks like something that stupid. But now I actually feel like we have this very primitive way of arguing where we just assume that there are, you know, um, uh, what, what was Anna Presley saying that we 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 don't want you know non intersectional black voices or like whatever. Yeah, yeah, and two, two observations on that front. Um, first, one thing that I noticed quite a lot in discussion-based seminars when I was on campus is that this idea that we're talking about attaching identity to ideas was um, pretty much the, the beginning of every statement that anyone would ever make because the incentive is to say, as a woman, X, Y, Z, or as whatever card you might be able to, to play to protect yourself and insulate yourself from identity-based attacks, 
it's supposed to give you some sort of credibility. And I remember in, in retrospect, I mean, my only card I have to play is, is the woman card. Unfortunately, I don't have anything else in my in my deck. But um, as a woman, this is my opinion. And that was how um, all of the conversations went eff effectively in my philosophy classes. But then the second point I wanted to make as well, um, to your point about individualism, is I, I mean, I think Gen Z is is really butting up against a, a reality here where we're we're pushed so far towards intersectionality because it's such a diverse generation it's the most especially in america probably the most diverse generation of, of people to ever live in one society in human history and i think it's really um it's really striking to see the intersectionality where we're starting to see each other as as venn diagrams and i'm this and i'm that and i'm i'm a I'm a woman, but I'm also queer, but I'm also of color and I'm I whatever umbrella of everything that you can put yourself under. But in the end, you're making the case for individualism with intersectionality. And I think that Gen Z is it's really butting up against that that reality, because if you're all these groups, like in the end, whatever is overlapping is you. And I, I, I think that um, that realization is, I hope, coming down the pipeline as as we um, delve more into that sort of intersectionality politics, because it just defies all logic to look at yourself that way. I wouldn't hold my breath, Ricky, about that realization <laughs> coming to pass. I mean, because the the intersection of the Venn diagram is still going to comprise more people than just you. Well, I, right? I mean, I think there's intimate. I think there. I, I think there's infinite um, uh, circles to draw. Because how many circles ultimately. have you got? Right. I mean, yeah, your politics, your geography, your sexuality, um, your star sign i mean in the end we're all individuals and i i mean i i think that the intersectionality is it an acknowledgement of the fact that these few essential uh demographic points are not enough to comprise an individual and and it's an excuse to to broaden that out in a way that i think is is a really lazy and um frankly cheap dodge of the fact that individualism is the ultimate truth and what of the argument that it might be very nice to to aspire towards this world, but in reality, the world that we live in is a world in which people treat each other on the basis of the colour of their skin and whether or not they're male or female and whether or not they present as male or female if they're trans or whether, whether they pass. It's a world in which homophobia still exists. It's a world in which there are structural ways in which certain communities are disadvantaged. And it's naive to think that we can all just bounce around as happy individuals treating each other as individuals. Sometimes communities have to come together and say, no, screw the system, stuff the man, like we are going to cohere as, as a group and we're going to assert our rights as a group. But th th this is one of the values of individuality. Um, is that, and this is something that Alan, you know, Coors used to say. The or this probably still says one of the co-founders of Fire that you know group rights um, don't guarantee individual rights, but individual rights guarantee group rights because it needs to be up to you how much you actually think. Like, are you defining yourself as a member of the gay community? Are you defining yourself as, as a member of the male community? Are you defining yourself as a member of the black community? It's got to be up to the individual to decide how much or how little they think they are part of their group and then to make that decision first. And when you work down... Right, but the activist would say, Greg, that the, it's not up to the black person who's trying to hail a cab whether or not the cab stops, even if they don't think of themselves as black. And it's not up to the young gay kid whether he gets teased for being effeminate or camp, uh, even if he doesn't identify as LGBTQ. 
Yeah, I guess we're talking about somewhat different things then. I'm talking about like how individuality, having an individual focus allows for, for group and it just doesn't work the other way around. When it comes to actual uh, things like discrimination, I mean, nobody's denying that, that, that all of these things are real and, and that the law actually has uh, various ways of dealing with it. But I, um, when it comes to, you know, since we're primarily talking about speech, are, are you are you saying that that because of these realities, we need to give power, more power to police speech? Yes, that would be that's the claim that I'm asking you to, to yeah. refute. I'm not putting that claim forward. Yes. In other words, that, the, yeah, if I articulate if I publicly articulate a bigoted view that undermines uh, a community's identity, mm-hmm. that people inside that community uh, feel like it's not good enough to just say, well, we're all individuals, so don't care about my attack on this group. And that does then lead to some kind of curtailing of speech or some kind of punishment of the person who seems to be stripping away people's identity and reducing their allegi- their group allegiance. Yeah, I think that um, it's something that uh, Jonathan Rausch writes a lot about is that um, the best, you know, ally of uh, individual of, of minority groups has always been freedom of speech, and for 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 a very you know big reason. Uh, and this is a major misconception that I, I feel like I'm running into more and more commonly is that and actually just a flat out wrong argument um, that, 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 I, that, I, that I've been saying is that freedom of speech exists to protect the majority, the powerful, the rich. And it's like, no, um, the rich and the powerful have been protected historically by being rich and powerful <laughs> um, in, in, in a democracy. Um, the majority opinion is protected by the vote. You literally only need a, 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 um, a an idea of freedom of speech for minority uh, opinions, for opinions that are unpopular with the majority, or opinions that are unpopular with the elites who run the country, or or both. You know, um, and I think about so you, you've got to kind of factor the politics part of this in. And the reason why we've turned all this stuff on our heads is that a lot of these ideas are coming out of institutions where. The people who think, uh, who oppose free speech are kind of like, who, who actually, you know, the, there's a political super majority that actually kind of like, well, what am I doing? Limiting my own power? I can actually bring paradise now that I'm actually, you know, in the one making the rules about um, speech while kind of pretending that they're still powerless. I mean, it's it's, it's one of the reasons why I think you, you, you see this weird self-deception in some of the richest companies in the world, like at institutions like Harvard and Princeton, sometimes talking as if they think they're the little guy, you know, um, in, in a lot of these uh, uh, circumstances. So for first of all, you know, like speech generally is something that uh, you shouldn't trust power, you know, to do right by the powerless. Um, and, and that's something that has been shown time and time again, that when you give those powers over speech to power, it will use it in its own in its own interest. And and I think that when you see this happen, you know, on campus, that sometimes they will use these lofty powers um, to police speech to more or less protect the brand name of the university. It's kind of like, well, no kidding. Like, obviously, that's uh, that's going to be what happens now when it comes to how do how do we deal in a free society with uh, the fact that you can actually create say like a hostile environment for, for 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 gay people or you know or or when you were talking about picking picking people up in a taxi you know like that you, you, there are laws you know saying that you can't discriminate on the basis of customers there are when you're talking about someone saying something 
you know, rude to someone who, who's gay, uh, the, uh, you, you, the idea that it, you can ban simply that incident, no, because we, because of the bedrock principle like I brought up. But a pattern of behavior that's discriminatory, then yeah, because that's, that's considered really to no longer be speech. And that's the way that we deal with it um, on campus. And that's the way we deal with it in the larger society in the United States. But it can't simply be someone saying something extremely rude or else that basically is giving power the power to go after kind of whoever they want. This power dynamic is interesting, Ricky. I, yeah, I find it fascinating that historically every attempt to curtail free speech has to be couched by the powerful as if it's on behalf of the powerless and as if it's fighting against a bigger power. I mean, you see in authoritarian regimes, they always cast themselves as the underdog or the little guy who who is mm-hmm. trying to fight back against some pernicious influence or some community that or some other nation that is trying to swamp them. In McCarthyism, it was freedom just struggling to survive against the onslaught of Soviet communism. You know, the religious right will do this about just trying to maintain some shred of dignity and sanctity and purity against an onslaught of filthy satirists or whatever it might be. And Mm -hmm. the weird thing about today is that the mainstream dominant elite positions that wealthy, mostly white, university-educated people hold have been able to peg themselves to genuinely disadvantaged communities and therefore appear to be on behalf of the marginalized and the disadvantaged, even though what they're actually doing is entrenching a powerful superstructure of speech codes and exclusion and a kind of a soft McCarthyism, which is itself an enactment of the views of the powerful. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think that some of the most heinous events in human history have been carried out by people who are claiming to be doing so on behalf of the little guy. And that's something that we've, we've certainly learned uh, loud and clear from history. But also, I, I mean, I think posturing that speech codes and, and censoring people and creating a society full of tripwires is somehow helping disadvantaged groups or the little guy just defies basically every statistic that we have about cancel culture and political correctness. We know that the majority of Americans know what cancel culture is. They're concerned about it. They, um, 82% of Americans say that political correctness has gone too far. So we have a tyranny of the minority of overeducated, uh, overzealous, illiberal uh, crybabies, effectively, canceling other people and then setting up um, all of these traps for other people to fall into on behalf of the minority groups that they pretend to be purporting to do this on on behalf of. But they are actually the tyranny of the minority in the end, um, enforcing that on the vast majority of, of Americans who do not want to live in that sort of world, and especially on young people who don't want to live in that, in that kind of world. I think the statistics on Gen Z and their attitudes of cancel culture is often surprising to people um, because we have overwhelmingly the most negative view of cancel culture of any generation alive. Um, and that completely defies the otherwise the trend of, of boomers having the the lowest view of them and millennials as you get younger more and more um pro cancel culture but gen z completely reverses that trend let's talk about what hate speech is if it is a thing at all because greg when you were talking about israel palestine uh and mentioning some of the questionable ideas that have come out of some institutions in expressing immediate reflexive knee-jerk solidarity, uh, not just with Palestinians, but with the justification for the underlying causes of the trauma that's given rise to Hamas's actions, if they don't quite go so far as to say that, uh, that Hamas's actions were correct. I also see on the other side, um, 
a great difficulty in trying to wrestle with what is the sustainability of Israel's position, what is the culpability of successive right-wing Israeli governments in settlement building, is there anything going on with the, you know, the the failure to find a two-state solution. Like, you start talking that way, let alone start talking about whether Zionism as an ethnic concept is has a place in the 21st century, and instantaneously any nuance gets collapsed into you're a self-hating Jew or you're an anti-Semite. And the same thing happens on the other side, where it's quite difficult to walk through the minefield. You only get two steps before you step on a mine that another person is able to then say, oh, I can dismiss this conversation. I don't even have to take part in it intellectually mm-hmm. because you're saying something that's beyond the pale and you are now an, an X and we don't, we don't debate Xs. How do we back out of that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's interesting watching the, you know, sacred cows of universities change. And as far as the most, so I, I, I'm the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. We defend freedom of speech all across the spectrum. We, you know, defend Palestinian pro-Palestinians when they get in trouble, and, they, and th- that happens quite a bit. Um, and uh, Jewish students when they get in trouble, uh, and pro-Israel students when they get in trouble, which also happens quite a bit. Uh, the, um, definitely, you know, uh, when I talk to some activists, they think that the only thing going on with campus censorship is actually the censorship of the pro-Palestinian side. And that drives me completely nuts because I'm like, no, it's actually, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's actually a relatively um, small uh, per, uh, percentage. Um, but when things, when there are that many taboos around a topic, it does make it almost, you know, incredibly difficult to um, argue through. Now, what should universities be doing to make these kind of discussions, to teach people to have more productive discussions around serious topics. They should be teaching people not to engage in logical fallacies, which we call in the book, um, The Obstacle Course. They should not be telling them to engage in um, like uh, cheap ad hominem dodges, which we call the minefield, um, for the kinds that both sides use in the book. Um, and they should not be engaged in what we already addressed as the perfect rhetorical fortress, and they should not be expanding um, their existing beliefs into semi-sacred taboo beliefs, you know, basically like to, to contradict it as a taboo. And that's what you would expect from a good educational system, and we are actually supercharging it instead. Rather than unteaching or teaching people how not to do this, I feel like a lot of people are learning in some of the most elite schools, ways to not actually have to have an argument at all because you just spend all the time figuring out ways to argue around it but never actually directly about it. Um, And there's not going to be any chance for the dialogue that you want um, if we allow all these cheap rhetorical tactics to keep keep running out the clock, frankly. Mm. And it's not just cheap rhetorical tactics, Ricky. It's also protest. I mean, I can't imagine trying to give a speech about... Uh, Israel and Gaza at the moment on a campus that attempted to encompass the views of both sides without at least one of the sides trying to shout it down, getting just shouting down, just being like, yeah. "We're not going to tolerate hate on yeah. campus. Enough is enough." Yeah. yeah, I mean, we have case after case in the book. Um, we go, we go through um, it like interspersed throughout our uh, case studies of um, just you know, in unbelievable explosions of a liberalism on campuses across the country and particularly at the most elite campuses as well and i think that 
Um, there is a kind of disproportionate attention paid to the squeakiest wheels who tend to be uh, very much uh, concentrated at the most elite universities at fires rankings this year harvard was by far the lowest ranking school for free speech in the state of free speech and i think that our elite institutions rightfully garner a lot of the headlines and also push kids into um the most like prestigious positions in society as well and so we spend a lot of time talking about that but i do think that it does give us a little bit of a distorted view of the broader generation of young people who are coming up, even though I don't think that we really fully understand free speech by and large and why it's an important um, cultural touchstone that we all need to buy into maintaining. I do think that there is a hunger for for more young people to um, to want to fight back against cancel culture. They just don't really know exactly how to because they've not been taught and and um, really armed with with the free speech culture values that could supplant cancel culture. But I do think that um, all the attention that we pay to the most obnoxious and the liberal students on the most elite campuses does kind of distort the view of, of a generation that's coming up and actually um, craving some sort of restorative vision to a better place. And what does it mean to be cancelled to you, Ricky? How are you guys defining it? Like there's a yeah. there's a kind of, you know, there's a theme, you know, we've heard about sort of consequence culture, not cancel culture. Uh, I work at the the national public broadcaster here in Australia, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. I'm routinely asked, do I think that my extracurricular pursuits like this podcast and my other interests will get me fired someday? <laughs> to which I say it's entirely possible and then I'll go off on YouTube and I'll do this podcast more and everything will be fine. And when everything is fine, people will say, see, there was no cancel culture. Josh might have been put out, you know, pushed out because he liked triggering tripwires and talking about things in a in a delicate and nuanced way that you know is not considered polite in polite in elite society anymore. But he's doing fine. He's in the independent media. What cancellation? What is cancellation? Yeah. So we define cancel culture as the uptick of attempts to get people. Um, fired, censored, or otherwise punished for their speech that starts in 2014 and really accelerates into in 2017, and also the culture of fear that surrounds the, that uptick. And I think um, a few things to what you're saying is um, I, I do think that cancel culture is more than just the elite people who land on their feet, like J.K. Rowling's an example that people love to, to point out, and they say, well, you know, she's still a billionaire and she's just fine and she has her Twitter account. Um, but we we often concentrate on the celebrities that do land on their feet and they do just fine and they do garner the headlines and they are the names that we know, but not the countless nameless mass of people who've been canceled as well. And I can say as as a young person who's writing about this issue that I am hearing from parent after parent after parent who tell me that their high schooler or their middle schooler has been caught up in a cancel culture campaign. They'll never make a headline. We'll never hear um, the stories of all the people who got pushed out of corporations who signed an NDA. Um, and so it's not just the people who fall, who land on their feet. It is It is a countless mass of people who have been made an example of. And then on top of that, Cancel culture is not just about its direct victims. It's about the the larger self-censoring uh, environment that it creates. And I mean, for myself, uh, for example, I, I think my college career was um, definitely undercut by the fact that I arrived on campus with an understanding that if I wanted to fit in and, and have a, a social life at a place like NYU, a very progressive university as a 
right-leaning libertarian that I needed to self-censor. And statistically speaking, we see that a majority of students say that they self-censor at least some point in time. And so I, as much as it's embarrassing to admit, and they're now loud and proud on my bookshelves, I hid books under my bed in my freshman dorm at NYU because I was, I was afraid of um, the social consequences of being authentic to myself. So I think Cancel culture is not just about the individual teardowns, which can be heinous and ad hominem and and cruel and cheap and mean in a way that we call out very seriously in the book. But it's also about the way that it distorts and makes an example of one person and just has a ripple effect in society at large. Greg, we don't want people to feel suppressed as Ricky did uh, in their work environment or in university on university campuses. At the, by the same token, um, the state of Victoria in Australia, which where Melbourne is, the, the country's largest city, has just um, passed a law outlawing Nazi salutes and uh, Nazi uh, paraphernalia. This predates the, um, the Israel-Gaza situation. This is a moving trend in Australian states to outlaw that. And the argument would be, okay, if you have some kind of idea that is worth engaging with, then maybe we don't want you to be suppressed. But if your idea is Heil Hitler, what's the problem with suppressing it? Why should we live in a country where that kind of hate exists? That would... Making it illegal stops it? Uh, stops it in public. Like, there have been demonstrations where, you know, a bunch of guys will go up to the town hall steps and do Heil Hitlers. That will now be illegal. Yeah, so... Well, that's... Yeah, that's funny. Um, well, for one thing, one of the things that we've seen, you know, on campus, and I, actually, it was really there was an episode of um, a Netflix show uh, called The Chair, which is which is about like life at a it, it's Sandra O oh, um, stars in it, uh, and it's about life in a, a little you know kind of falling down uh, liberal arts college um, in the middle of nowhere, and they have a situation where the professor does a heil to Heidegger. Um, uh, 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 talking about Heidegger, Heidegger was a Nazi, um, and and it's not him saying I love Hitler. It's him saying you know screw you, freaking Nazi, um, and that gets caught on tape, and then immediately, um, you know, like he's he's canceled. There's a, there's a there's a movement to to get him fired, um, and it was funny seeing Michelle Goldberg, a, a reporter for the um, the columnist for the New York Times, who I quite like actually. Uh, quite a bit um uh calling this out and something that i wrote saying well you know like that's that's just fanciful you know um no wait sorry she called it called it out uh, like in in the um in the show and being like that exact thing happened um at uh, at a school like seven months before it was based on a real thing that was a fired case where and the message they were trying to convey with the hail hitler thing was you're being a fascist so i think that there's a very the 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 mind that you can fix serious societal problems through suppressing things that are uncomfortable or ugly is very, very short-sighted. I, I think probably nothing did more to stop the American Nazi movement than the fact that Nazis were free to um, march in Skokie, Illinois. They were defended largely by Jewish attorneys from the ACLU um, who, uh, you know, they hated their attorneys and the lawyers didn't like them either. Um, but they defended them. Um, and people got to see how freaking ridiculous they were. Um, there's uh, my my, uh, my executive vice president, Nico Perino, um, Aaron Reese and Chris Mulvey did a documentary called Mighty Ira, 
uh, that I'm also the executive producer of, which is about the life and times of Ira Glasser, you know, one of the great um, civil libertarians of the 20th century. He was the executive director of the ACLU for 25 years. And how ridiculous, you know, th these marchers made themselves look um, is really portrayed only in a way by seeing them yourself. Um, the uh, And there's a moment in the movie where like the apparently didn't range the the march really well like and and things are going wrong and, and they never and, do and, and you almost feel like he's going to shout out it's like you're turning this nazi march into a travesty <laughs> like there's nothing funnier than actually like seeing these the, the, these people at work and so they like the idea that kind of like state power making the making the salute go away is somehow going to do anything real to address the problem and actually the, it's worse than that it will generally get people to talk to people you know hate speech laws in general to the people who they know won't turn them in. Who are those people known as? People who agree with them and who are also also Nazis too. And that has, and this is, there's great social science on this. You get people who agree to each other, talking to each other. They start out here and then they spiral off into the, into the sides. And, um, you know, you can break a group of, of, of a dozen people into two groups of six uh, from left to right, go have them talk to each other and they come out more radicalized in the direction that, uh, that they came from. So I think that yeah, there's... Oh, Sorry. I just think there's a. Totally I think you think, then thinking you can you can fix these things just uh, just through censorship. And two, I don't think they understand group polarization and how this can actually make things more dangerous. And one thing Ricky. from our um, from our book that I think gives a super interesting piece of data that we've been fortunate to be able to um, debut is from the National Contagion Research Institute, which found. Um, they did an analysis of, of mass Twitter bans um, since 2016, which is when they started purging accounts that, I mean, definitely had some very unsavory views and connections like white supremacist accounts or proud boy accounts um, <laughs> in mass. And they found consistently that in a month where Twitter purged a group of these accounts, that Gab, which tends to be a more radical right wing Twitter alternative, um, increased in membership pretty considerably every single time they they moved people from twitter they just went to a place where they would have this confirmation loop feedback bias um and so we think that that's a pretty serious uh condemnation of, of what so social media censorship can do because it will not get rid of those ideas it puts them in a more obscure and weird crevice of the internet where people only hear from people who agree with them and the rest of us don't really understand what's going on in that corner of the world and i think um, an even more disturbing version of that, in my opinion, is what happened when we quarantined the former president of the United States from Twitter and allowed him to go into an echo chamber, start his own echo chamber, and only talk to his supporters. And the rest of us don't really understand what's happening in the truth social corner of the Internet and um, and what a serious plurality of Americans believe in, and like the the viewpoints. I mean, we just see these Twitter serve these truth social screenshots that might float around Twitter here and there. But like, are we not better off for for knowing what the former president of the United States, who very well could be the next president of the United States, is is tweeting or thinking, or would we rather just allow that to um, to exist in its own little magosphere? I think um, at basically all of the the instances of mass social media censorship or high profile social media censorship like that have seriously backfired in a way that um, is statistically and I think just philosophically uh, obvious. I mean, it depends on your measurement uh, of success here, right? You know, they, they may fail, these bans may fail if your metric is 
does it make those people does it wipe those people off the face of the earth and stop them from spreading their ideas with each other but if the metric of success is are we able to create a social media environment in which people who are not batshit crazy are able to talk constructively about things without having uh neo-nazis jump into their timeline and start arguing with them then there then that is an upside but, Isn't that, I mean, like, just let well, the crevice, if you want to, if they, if you're quarantining them and they're going off and doing their crazy thing. But you can block and, and on some and, level, who gives a shit? Yeah. I mean, you can, you, you can block and you can mute and, and, and all of these. And I think actually a good measurement is how much safer it makes your society overall. And what I'm saying is that we, by having like the, something that feels good, like kind of the short term can actually have really pernicious long term effects that you actually send these groups off to become much more dangerous and much more radicalized and you take them out of the public view as well um you know like the and there's also you know a, a simple premise about conspiracy theorists if you're battling a conspiracy theorist who believes that there's a conspiracy to shut them up do absolutely nothing like a conspiracy to shut them up um the, a lot of these things don't don't handle the light of day very well they don't stand up to evidence and they can end up being your, your harmless crackpots uh, as opposed to your truly dangerous person who suddenly found their island of dangerous misfit toys. Yeah, I mean, maybe the thing about, maybe there's a difference with social media that rubs me the wrong way, which is that you're talking about an environment in which there are algorithms that are putting their finger on the scale to select for content that is going to aggravate people, going to get engagement, going to get people to like or comment or share. Uh, therefore, there's a bias towards reinforcing things you already believe, demonizing ideas that you don't believe and the nuanced position is is proactively drowned out by the algorithm uh so there i felt like you know it's on some level can't we curate this shit like do i have to constantly be do i have to constantly be hearing the volume turned up on the craziest stuff i'll just leave the the platform but i take your point Ricky, about the general principle i mean and also greg about the ridiculousness of extremists when you actually shine a light on them and look at what they're doing. I mean, I was mentioning the neo-Nazis at, at Melbourne Town Hall doing their Hitler salutes. And when you saw close-up news footage that was very sensational of this melee of uh, far-right activists, it looked terrifying. And then you see a wide shot. It's yeah. 23, 23 dudes <laughs> all sitting, standing in the middle of nowhere and a bunch yeah. of passers-by filming them on their iPhones. Yeah, fat Aryans. Yeah, it's absurd. Well, I, I mean, this this was the thing that I, 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 I realized accidentally walking, because I, I used to live in D.C. during the Clinton administration, and I didn't realize that Bill Clinton went to um, the church that he would go to was on 16th Street. So when I'd be doing like my Sunday walk, I remember running, walking by all these horrible funny looking you know uh, dudes like holding like things that, that signs that, that said things like jew whores like things that made no sense at all um well and, some jews are whores greg so <laughs> they may have had a point and for every one of them there was seven or eight protesters you know on the other side so it's kind of like so some of these laws they don't actually they exist in a world where there won't actually be the counter protest part, you know, like right. that's, yeah. that's actually, ha that's how it works in the real world. That's how, that, that's how civic society takes place. But I did want to add, and just so, you know, we, we, Ricky talked a little bit about cases that we can't know about and cases that are hard to quantify. I did want to give the audience a little bit of, of a sense of how bad this is in, in, in higher education and how much trouble we think higher education is in. And I usually have to start off by giving the, um, explaining to people 
you know, what a bad moment in academic freedom looks like um, in, in the modern era. And what I mean by the modern era was it wasn't until between 1957 and 1973 that the American First Amendment came to really strongly protect academic freedom and campus free speech. Like before that, people thought that you can uh, fire professors if, if they were communists, for example, and the law wasn't instructed that they couldn't. Um, the uh, But after 73, uh, probably one of the biggest uh, like uh, paroxysms of what we call mass censorship inc incident was um, uh, 9-11. Uh, and, and that was when um, th th there was, a, and that was right when I started my career. Uh, all these people getting in trouble for, in some cases, saying insensitive things about the attack, like anyone who can blow up the Pentagon has my vote. Was was my actual first letter defending someone, um, and uh, or in some cases, like my friend Mike Adams, uh, criticizing someone who said America had it coming. Um, so there, the, the, there was an intense case, and the normal situation for mass censorship is national security. Something real, everyone's freaked out. Um, and there were, uh, then there was a big uptick of these. There was about 17 professors targeted in the years after, uh, 9-11 for 9-11 related speech and also Iraq war speech. Um, about three of them were fired and that's really bad. When you look into it a little bit more, it actually turns out one of them was fired for academic misconduct at, uh, Ward Churchill, um, after having his speech rights vindicated partially you know, with something fire fought as well. Um, Samuel Arian was actually exonerated from it, him just saying death to Israel in a, in a tape recording from 1989 wasn't what got him fired. It was actual ties to terrorism. Um, and th uh, three, th th that was a case where someone devoted a lot of her technical writing class to a long argument about the Iraq war. And basically they made the argument like, you didn't teach your class, you know, for a long time. So we're not rehiring you. Um, so, but Still, three, you know, like that's that, that, that's a bad couple of years. Uh, now we're looking at, for, since the beginning of cancel culture in 2014 and going through about the last July, our data indicates over a thousand attempts to get professors punished or fired, um, that about two thirds of them have been punished in some way, almost 200 of them fired. Um, and, you know, to give a sense of, and it's not actually a fair comparison because the law didn't apply back then. If you look at McCarthyism, um, the study, the biggest study that was done during McCarthyism, um, and we're still in cancel culture, so that's the one you should count. And by the way, McCarthyism was 1950, 1947, 1957, so that's 11 years. Um, they found about 62, 63 communist professors um, were, were fired, um, about 90 for their opinion overall, and a lot of times that's rounded up to about 100. Um, and we think now with lots of decades to look into it, there might be more closer to 100, 150. So we're talking about numbers that are actually larger than the number of professors fired under uh, under McCarthyism, but it's actually worse than that because um, because we know in a lot of these smaller schools, none of none of this gets makes the light of day. Like there's no news coverage of, of the 800th rate rank school in the country, for example. Um, but the um, uh, but one in six professors say they've either been investigated or threatened with investigation for their academic freedom, free speech, etc. One in six. Uh, which is just a crazy number, considering there's already no viewpoint diversity in some of these departments, or, or very little. It's amazing they can find this many, you know, heretics to burn. Um, and one third say that they've actually been told that they shouldn't pursue controversial, uh, uh, controversial research. So it, 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 we document that this is happening on a scale that we have no comparison to. The nothing in the last fifty years comes even vaguely close to this. Um, and we do point out, by the way that one third of the punishments uh, of the professors who are punished, those actually come initially from the right. 
Um, and that means, you know, uh, Fox News, uh, Turning Point USA, like all, all of these groups that actually do campaigns to get crazy lefty professors uh, uh, fired. Now, of course, you know, the administrators actually doing the firing often not themselves, right? But still, um, you know, and it's interesting to watch if if suddenly for some people that suddenly makes them care more about the topic. And it's like, mm. OK, well, that made you care more about the topic than I care less about your opinion about this topic because you, <laughs> you, 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 you should it's care. It's not a principled position. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not. It's, expedient. It's, it's it's not a principled position. And and I just like when you uh, in the book, we talk about all the different sort of conformity-inducing devices there are short of cancel culture, you know, in higher education today. So I, I, I think it paints a a more desperate picture of what higher education looks like in the United States, particularly elite higher education, than even I initially intended to. Um, I actually got very depressed <laughs> while, while writing the book, um, coming to realize all the different mechanisms you can have to you know, either slightly discourage someone from publishing something. What are those, Greg, mm-hmm. you talked about that you just mentioned a conformity-inducing mechanism that falls short of cancel culture? What's an example? Uh, a diversity, equity, and inclusion statements. Um, that essentially this is something that uh, – and the, the, the amazing thing is this happened in 2020 when we were seeing an unparalleled uptick in professors losing their jobs for their opinions and students getting published. We've never seen a year as bad as 2020 and 2021 ever. Um, uh, it, it, in fire history, and it's probably you know the worst year um, since the law was established in 1973 at minimum. Um, and and just to unpack that, that's because we were at a moment of heightened uh, racial and social justice reckoning. Is it? It was was it amidst the in the wake it was, of the George Floyd murder it, and. What, a what, sense what, that if you're not on the right side, you're, yeah. then you're on the wrong side of history. And and, and also and everyone had a whole lot more time to be locked up and shooting other people down with their cell phones. So yeah. this is true. That yes. is principle too. Everybody became their Twitter avatar, you know, and yeah. uh, that, that person is much less, much less compromising and much more, you know, um, righteous. Uh, and yeah, that, that was the context. And of course, you know, I'm a civil liberty, uh, a civil libertarian. Like, so, so when I saw the horrifying murder of George Floyd, I was like, okay, well, here are the following five or six reforms that we can do and we should do right now. And we should get political will together to, to actually pass something, um, that could actually prevent this from happening in the future. And, but unfortunately on campus, it, it turned into, into a situation where people were producing like old columns that people wrote years ago or old tweets or old videos that people made when they were 14 in an effort to get people canceled, to get, to get people, their, their admissions to schools, uh, you know, uh, pulled, uh, pulled, but the, the diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, statements, you know, they're, they're about, uh, depending on how they're phrased, they're, they're mandatory at almost every stage in higher education um, now, the, the kind of things you have to fill one out before you go to, to higher ed and for almost any job that you could get all, all the way up. And when you look at the way these are phrased, they're asking you for your, you know, to show your commitment to DEI principles. And it's like, okay, that's a political litmus test. There is literally no way that you can evaluate this without evaluating someone's politics. And if someone came in who was more conservative and kind of like, Actually, I believe, you know, all people are equal or actually I, I, I don't buy into a lot of the ideology that's baked into DEI. You believe me, you're not getting the job. But also, you don't have to believe me for that matter, uh, because we did an experiment. Um, that Nate Honeycutt at FIRE, uh, before he came to FIRE, did an experiment where he, he got a huge number of professors together to actually evaluate various DEI statements. And he wanted to see if the 
like most uh, doctrinaire sort of um, might be called like a woke like version of uh, of the DEI statement. And then he had ones that emphasize viewpoint diversity, socioeconomic diversity, uh, religious diversity. And the only one that would get you hired routinely was actually the one that was the most doctrinaire. Um, the other ones would not. Uh, even the socioeconomic one, which, which killed me, because I think that that's actually the the diversity that's most lacking in higher education is not a too, not enough poor kids, you know, fr- frankly. So by having that at every stage, when they're clearly political litmus tests, in a time where viewpoint diversity is already very low, you um, you you're you're already you're weeding it the the pool even further for more conformist uh, students, and then add to that what Ricky brought up the bias related incident programs, the fact that you can literally you get a phone number sometimes to anonymously report your professors and anonymously report your um, fellow students for offensive speech. It, it's yeah, and so we try to layer them on, on on top of each other to show like how we should be doing the precise opposite. We should have not non conformity um, inducing pressures. And Ricky, those incentives to essentially dob in a classmate or a snitch, as you would say in America, uh, the it's is it making people worse at arguing for their own positions? I mean, I've had a few conversations recently with friends and colleagues where I've been amazed at how bad they are at articulating why they believe what they believe. They just say they just parrot what sounds to me like something that they've read somewhere online yes. or that they've seen in a YouTube talk. And I try to interrogate it, and they go, I mean, because it's good. Like, it, I mean, why Why would you want to be nasty to people? Why would you want to, want to belittle people? Why would you want to make people feel bad? Like, what's the point of that? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, because I like ideas. Because yeah. I want to find out what's true. And sometimes that requires treading on people's toes. Are, are people getting worse? Yeah, I mean, certainly. I think um, John Haidt calls this institutional stupidity, and I definitely saw that at um, at NYU. When you have a group of people that just all um, at least vocally agree with one another and have not actually had to um, defend their viewpoints against anyone else. I mean, I think devil's advocacy is something that has just completely gone to the wayside. Um, I remember when I was in in class one time, a kid said, I'm going to play devil's advocate. And he obviously was probably like the the most vocal, right-leaning person in, in in the classroom and there was like hisses and sneers at him even though he was posturing that it's not even his own viewpoint. get the devil um, get the devil yeah i mean it's 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 disturbing to me because um when i was at nyu i'm i'm i've told this story before but i i self-censored for two years and then the pandemic happened and i said screw it i'm gonna write i'm gonna write about the free speech problem on campus and i wrote for the new york post um, just about feeling like I couldn't be authentic to myself and how I think that's a problem on campus. And I thought I was completely and totally alone when I hit send on that uh, op-ed and that I was uh, ready to just be completely piled on. And I did get some uh, people who canceled me from from group chats, et cetera. But um, by and large, the response was actually super, super positive, even from an ex- extra ultra progressive elite university like NYU, where people were reaching out to me in mass, um, like kids that were in my classes, kids that lived across my hall, kids that um, like I'd seen and interacted with on a daily basis, uh, professors, deans who I would never have known actually felt the same way as me and actually had different viewpoints um, and who all reached out to me and said, I completely agree with you, but just don't tell anyone that we had this conversation. So that's how the institutional stupidity self-perpetuates is that there's, there might be people around the table who might want to challenge ideas, but they're all too afraid of doing so. And so 
um, those who have the dominant viewpoint really uh, come out the other end having not really seen their views challenged, even if there might be someone at the table who who thinks otherwise. I want to talk about uh, sensitivity training and uh, the gender difference between uh, our attitudes towards cancel culture, uh, if there are any, and uh, and how we should fix all this and what the future looks like. But uh, to our, our free listeners, I will bid uh, bid you all farewell, and I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Greg and Ricky. If you want to subscribe, uncomfortableconversations.substack.com. Um, yeah, is there a gender split between our attitudes towards cancel culture, Ricky? To hear the rest of this conversation, go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen, and you will get your own personal premium podcast feed with at least three extra episodes of the podcast every month and heaps of extra stuff, including the remainder right now of the fabulous conversation you've just been hearing. If it was worth listening to this much of, don't rob yourself of the rest. Pull out your phone right now and search for Uncomfortable Conversations with Substack. 